Hi, this is Andrew Keane. Welcome to a special edition of Keen On, featuring an interview I did for my Regenerate show. Regenerate, fostering the transition to a regenerative economy. For more, go to regenerateforum.org. Enjoy. If there's one theme that comes up time and time again in our Regenerate series. It's our relationship with the earth, whether it's Dalmas Tiampati's relationship with the, uh, the land, the earth of his ancestors in Southern Kenya, or uh, Joel Salatin's relationship with the earth of the Shenandoah Valley, his land of his ancestors, or Mimi Castile's relationship with the, the earth that generates the wine of Oregon. We've come back time and time again to our relationship as humans with the earth, with land. So is there a philosophy? Can we get to a philosophy of our relationship with the land, with the earth? Scott Russell Sanders is one of America's leading writers uh, on nature, on the environment. But rather than thinking of himself as a nature writer, he th likes at least to define himself as an earth writer. Scott, why an earth writer rather than a nature writer? Calling someone a nature writer implies that nature is a subject, something out there that one can take an interest in as one might be a sports writer or a travel writer or a film writer. Nature is not something out there. We are made of it. We breathe it, we drink it, we eat it. Our bodies are literally made out of the earth. And so I rather think of myself as an earth writer about a creature living on the planet alongside all the other creatures and also a, cre a creature who is made of the planet, who is breathing air generated by plants, who's drinking water that is part and parcel of the earth. So I think of myself as an earth writer. It's not a mere playing with words. It, it's important to me to think in those terms. Uh, Scott, you've made your name uh, around your writing about uh, the Hardwood Hill country of southern Indiana. You've glamorized Indiana like nobody else. I think it's a hard place to actually glamorize. Well, what is your relationship to this hill country? Why have you built your literary and perhaps your uh, philosophical foundation around this part of the world? It's partly by accident, Andrew, because I grew up in Indiana. I mean, I grew up in Ohio, I'm sorry. I, and I was born in the South in Tennessee and work brought me to the hill country of Southern Indiana to teach at Indiana University. And my wife is from this part of the world. And so she was happy to move here and I have been happy to stay here. So to some extent, it's an accidental. This happens to be where I have made my adult life and made my life as a writer. Had I been set down somewhere else, I might well have been invested in that place. But what's distinctive about this landscape is that it's actually very old. Most people think of the Midwest 
as the glacial plain, the rich, deep soils. And northern Indiana has those rich, deep soils, but they're only about 10,000 years old from the time that the last glacier retreated. But the hills where I live were erosional features that are about 300 million years old. And there's something about the age of this place that appeals to me. And also the hardwood forests appeal to me because in the part of Ohio where I grew up, I spent a great deal of my childhood playing in the woods, very much the kinds of woods that I have around me here in Southern Indiana. How would you describe those woods to a child? I know, Scott, uh, you've written a number of children's books and perhaps that's a, um, that, that, that's a, a, a style that naturally attracts you as a, an earth writer uh, because kids appreciate the earth, perhaps in some ways more than adults, don't they? I think all children have an instinctive feelings, an instinctive attraction to living things. The biologist E.O. Wilson called it biophilia, the love of living things. Certainly a child will, if not inhibited or not prevented, will explore nature, will turn over rocks, will climb trees, will watch bugs and so forth. I did that as a child. I have written several children's books which focus on children exploring the world. One's called Meeting Trees. And it tells a story that's really about me as a child whose father loved the trees, loved the forests, and would take me for walks in the woods and introduce me to individual trees. And he would do that as though the tree were a person. He might say, Scott, this is black walnut. And I would become acquainted with its leaves, its bark, in this case, the nuts that it produced, kinds of animals that lived around it. And then you wouldn't only tell me the name of the tree. He would say, and black walnut, this is Scott. He would literally introduce us in that way. And he wasn't being cute or coy. He was conveying to me a sense of trees as these great powerful beings. So I wrote a children's book to capture that, a book called Meeting Trees. And through my father in particular, I learned to love the forests. And the forests around here, when I say hardwood, that means these are trees that lose their leaves. They're not conifers. And they're ones that are among the oldest tree species on earth, like beech and birch and oak and maple. Yeah, when I see the great trees in California, even in Berkeley or, 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 or outside the Bay Area, it, there's a certain awesomeness about it to see these living, I don't know whether you want to call them living creatures that, that have existed long before I, I, I came into the world and, and will continue to exist, I hope, long after I leave this world. They seem to tie together generations. And your work and your thinking, I think, Scott, has, has the same kind of quality, a timelessness because of its uh, intergenerational quality. Is that what you're trying to do as an earth writer, to somehow both escape time, but also incorporate it? Certainly the age of the earth 
its four plus billion years of existence as a planet. And as far as we know, the earliest life appeared not long after Earth itself formed. So life, there's been life on this planet for at least three billion years. I think of my life and my work and our existence as human beings as a part of this history, a very brief part of this history. Uh, and I think about my writing in the context of Earth history, which again is four billion years old. And although this sounds grandiose, I think of my writing, I think of my life as part of the almost 14 billion year old history of the universe, the universe that we know of. Most of the ideas and values that I articulate in my writing are ones that many people before me, painters, filmmakers, writers, have articulated. I see myself taking part in a, in a lineage of human expression and human thought. I don't see myself as somebody who is revolutionizing our understanding of our place on earth. In fact, part of what I'm doing is to try to recover some of the wisdom that is available to us from indigenous cultures and from our own ancestors and our own traditions to recover some of that wisdom about how we ought to live on earth and what our lives can mean. That recovery is another theme that has uh, appeared in our series. Uh, one of our guests, uh, you may know her work, her farm, her books, uh, Isabella Tree, uh, uh, a farmer in, in southern England, has essentially returned her farm to nature. This going back almost has uh, a, an Eden-like quality. What do you think, Scott, in philosophical and practical terms of this rewilding movement, this return to nature, this escape from the chemical pollution of the industrial age? We certainly need to escape from the chemical pollution of industrial agriculture. It's bad for us and it's bad for every other living creature. We need to recover ways of providing food for ourselves that don't deplete the soil, that don't poison the waters, that don't send plastic into the oceans. We definitely need to do that. We also, I think, as moral beings, have a responsibility to make it possible for other species to live. We are destroying, we are occupying so much habitat on the planet that we are squeezing other species out of existence. And I think that is simply a moral failure, a moral sin. We have no right to claim exclusive use of this marvelous planet. We need to leave habitats for other species. And as you mentioned, we can rewild habitats with some effort on our part, depending on the wild energies of the natural world. Here in Southern Indiana, if you leave a farm field unplowed, just leave it fallow, within five years, you will have the beginnings of a hardwood forest. Squirrels will, and blue jays will come and they'll bury nuts. 
the wind will bring seeds and pretty soon you'll have new trees coming up. And if you come back in a hundred years, you're gonna have a mature forest. The earth will reforest here because we get enough rain and the soil is rich enough. So there are many parts of the world, and I happen to live in one, which will regenerate on their own if we simply quit exploiting them. Other places where there's less water or where the con growing conditions are much more difficult in arid lands and in cold lands, nature does not regenerate nearly as fast as it would do here or in Southern England. I think it's a, an excellent idea to rewild lands if we could if we could move to a more vegetable-focused diet, less meat-focused diet in all the rich countries, there would be much land freed up, land which right now is devoted to growing crops to feed animals instead of feeding people. There'd be much land freed up that could be returned to its natural state. There's a, an essay in the book about a retired banker who wanted to do something useful with his wealth. And what he decided to do was to buy up abandoned, exploited forest land and allow it to regenerate. He wanted to make old growth forests possible for future generations. And the idea appealed to me so deeply that I wrote, wrote up an account of how this man had arrived at that impulse. What does that example and that essay in The Way of Imagination teach us about the practical challenges and opportunities of regenerative agriculture in the early 21st century, Scott? There certainly are practical challenges. Invasive species, climate disruption, trees which were once native to where I live here in Indiana, some, st some struggle now because the summers are too hot or the winters are not cold enough. And of course, this, this impact of climate change is happening all over the planet. In places such as Vermont, which have historically been centers for maple syrup gathering, maple trees are having difficulty regenerating because the winters are not cold enough and the summers are too hot. So one of the practical problems, and it faces every habitat on earth, is global heating. Another practical problem is that because of the mobility of humans and our products, we carry seeds and organisms all over the planet. So there are a lot of invasive species, plant species, insect species, fish, around the earth. And these are also making it difficult to regenerate landscapes, at least diverse landscapes. The other, one other great challenge for the effort, facing efforts at regeneration is the lack of imagination. And that's one of the major themes of my book. We have to envision a better world a renewed world, we have to envision it before we can work towards it. If we don't have a vision of what we want the world to be more like, what will happen is just more of the same. 
what will happen will be a continuation of current trends, most of which are destructive. Uh, so envisioning what sort of landscape we hope to restore, envisioning what sort of society we hope to live in is vital before and while we are making the effort to actually achieve that vision. Yeah, and that envisioning, of course, is one of the, 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 the priorities of our Regenerate series. Uh, Scott, earlier in your career, you wrote a very powerful essay entitled Staying Put about the value of staying in place. British political writer David Goodhart has created uh, the, the, the term somewheres and anywheres to describe the, 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 the political problems of early 21st century uh, industrialized world, suggesting that um, the, the globalizers may be the problems, the people who can live anywhere. They tend to be liberal, but they're the ones destroying the planet. You've been, for the most part, um, a somewhere. You built your career on living on the land and writing about the land of, of Indiana. How important is it in your mind for us to to stay put and for this value to be taught and thought about in schools and universities and in families? I think commitment to place and commitment to community and those two things go together. Commitment to place and commitment to community is vital for the health and welfare of all those places. The problem with global mobility is that nobody is keeping track of the health of particular places. And nobody lives on the planet. Everybody lives in a particular city, town, village, or back road. They may live there temporarily. But unless there are people committed to those places, who's going to be making sure that the water is drinkable, that the air is breathable? that the streets are safe, that the schools are doing a good job. Th those who are most mobile in our society and around the planet depend on there being other people who are committed to the places where they arrive and leave. They, so it's not, I don't argue in the book called Staying Put, I don't argue that nobody should move around. I certainly have moved around, I do travel. But, but when I travel, I have a home place that I come back to and I bring the benefits of my travels to that home place. Humans are a restless species and that's our creativity, our curiosity leads to that restlessness. And those are good, good features. But at the same time, unless there is a core of people committed to every community, to each community on the planet and to each landscape on the planet, those communities and those landscapes will be destroyed because nobody will be caring for them. Nobody will keeping, be keeping track of them. So I think right now it is the case that some of the wealthiest and therefore most mobile people on the planet are among the most damaging partly because of the level of consumption of everything, of jet fuel, of houses, of, of uh, property in general, 
and partly because they are relying on other people, committed people, to keep the world in good health and workable so that they can enjoy their travels. I think this is a really important uh, thesis, Scott. Um, and I think the people you describe, the people who are doing most damage to the environment, often un unknowingly and often uh, in, in a way that I think would trouble them if they understood what they were doing, their labor is dissociated from the land, from the earth. To what extent do you think, just as we need to regenerate agriculture and produ uh, agricultural production in the 21st century, we need to regenerate the very idea of labor uh, and, and tie it back to the land, to the earth, or at least in terms of valuing that labor. Uh, Nietzsche, of course, talked about the, the transvaluation of, uh, of things. Perhaps we need to transvalue the notion of labor in terms of the earth. People who work on the earth, who grow our food, who harvest our food, and make it possible for us to go to a grocery store or go to a restaurant and, and, and be fed, those are among the lowest paid people on earth. They are among the ones who are most exposed to hazardous chemicals, to hard working conditions. Whereas the people who are most consumptive, who are working in the corner office on the 48th floor of a skyscraper in Hong Kong or in New York, uh, those people rely on the labor of farmers, of harvesters, of the truckers who drive food across country, of the pilots who fly food from other countries uh, into, our, into our airports and then to our markets. Um, the people who are most privileged in our society, and it's true other societies around the world, are the ones who are most disconnected from the soil itself and from the labor that makes their lives possible. And that displacement, that disconnection, makes it possible for them to make decisions every day that affect the lives of people working on the land, that affect the lives of welders and carpenters and plumbers and mechanics and nurses, affect their lives but they're so cut off from those lives that they make decisions that often are damaging, harmful, or even cruel. And when I talk about people working on the 48th floor of some skyscraper in the executive suite, I also include the most powerful politicians in our country at the state and federal level who are cut off from the people and the circumstances that are affected by their decisions. I think that it would be a good idea to require every decision maker in the executive suites and in the political offices to spend time. And I don't mean just the passing through, I mean spend days seeing what the lives of farm laborers are like, of migrant workers are like, what school teachers are like. I don't want to hear another governor hold forth about the ills of public schools who hasn't spent a week in a public school watching and listening and learning. So 
reconnecting to the earth, the literal earth, the soil under our feet, our fellow species, reconnecting to the earth is part of it, part of what we need, we all need. And the more disconnected we are from it, the more we need it. But also reconnecting to people who do the, the fundamental work that makes civilization possible. And again, that's farm workers, that's carpenters, that's teachers, that's nurses, that's truck drivers. Uh, and reconnecting the rich, the privileged, to the real workers of the world and to the sources of our food and our air and our water is vital. Scott, one of our other guests on, on the Regenerate show was Frederick Laloux, the organizational theorist. He is arguing very strongly that to accomplish real change, we need to rethink the very nature of organization. The top-down hierarchies of the 19th and 20th century don't work, and they're being run by the very people you're critiquing, I think, in your writing and in this conversation. Do organizations, these top-down hierarchies, do these need to be blown up if we're to truly reform society and agriculture? Do organizations need to be flattened? I don't pretend to be any sort of expert, well, really on any subject, but certainly not on organizations. But in my own experience, the most humane organizations are cooperatives. Uh, a, a significant fraction of the American economy actually consists of co-ops. Uh, we bank with a co-op. Geico Insurance Company is a co-op. And they are not hierarchical. They are owned by their constituents, as a democracy should be as well. Uh, I agree that hierarchical organizations, and the military, of course, is one. Uh, hierarchical organizations tend towards authoritarianism. They separate the most influential decision makers from the people who are most affected by those decisions. And as the size of corporations has increased over time, and especially in our country where corporations have been granted many of the rights theoretically granted to individual persons, as corporations have grown in size, the decision makers at the top have been more and more separated and estranged from not only their own employees, but all of the people affected by their corporate decisions. Right now, as you probably have seen in the Fortune 500 companies in the United States, the average executive, chief executive salary is on the order of 400 times as large as the median salary of their employees. And that is grotesque. Other countries like Germany and Japan somehow managed to have very effective corporate management with CEOs who only earn on the order of 25, not 400, but 25 times the median salary of their employees. So yes, certainly hierarchical organizations, the larger they are, the more likely they are to be abusive towards their employees and towards the earth. Yeah, that exploitative relationship I think is key. Um, and just as um, we have, as you suggest, a more and more exploitative relationship between CEOs and their workers, 
So it seems as if many people, at least over the last 100 or 200 years of the industrial age, have treated the earth itself as a kind of employee, as a thing to generate wealth, to suck resources out of. Do you think that one of the problems is that we've treated the earth, we've treated nature as, uh, uh, as just another part of the proletariat, just another piece of the workforce? I think we treat it, many people treat it as something even lo lower than the proletariat because we at least think of the proletariat as these, these uh, lowly human workers who don't justify, who, who, who shouldn't be allowed to organize into unions and shouldn't be allowed to go on strike or demand higher wages or better working conditions. Nature can't make any demands on us. On the other hand, nature, the earth is, it doesn't negotiate with us. So if we add fossil, if we add uh, greenhouse gases to the atmosphere as we are doing in vast amounts every year, the earth doesn't say, well, uh, what, how do you want me to react to this? The earth is gonna react the way the earth, with physics and chemistry dictate. And similarly, as we, as we drill for oil, in offshore, in the oceans. Inevitably, our rigs are going to leak or they're going to explode and pollution will occur and, and animals in the oceans are going to die. And that's not negotiable. Nature doesn't negotiate. We often treat nature as though we could dic dictate to it and we could simply extract from the earth whatever we want, minerals, fossil fuels, topsoil, we can extract from the earth whatever we want and it will continue to provide us the same abundance that we now enjoy, we as a species now enjoy. That's a complete illusion. We can't exploit the earth without depleting the very resources that we depend on and that all species on earth depend on for our livelihood. The common attitude towards the natural world by the industrial civilization is that the natural world is a, is a warehouse of resources and a place for dumping our wastes. And that is simple-minded and ultimately for the species suicidal view of the earth. Scott, in your final essay of your latest collection, The Way of Imagination, uh, you have a uh, a very personal, very metaphysical essay entitled God in the Garden, in which you quote um, René Dubu, uh, the uh, French-American bio-philosopher, uh, bio about the, the wooing of the earth. You suggest that the earth is something that needs to be wooed rather than exploited or used. Uh, I, I love that language, that word. Of course, it's not originally your word, but you focus on it. Is that a return to something pre-industrial, perhaps a, a return to classical or classical civilization, antiquity, or even the feudal world? This notion of wooing brings to mind uh, a knight or some other figure in the, in the feudal hierarchy. What it brings to, what that metaphor of wooing the earth, of courting the earth, of dealing with it tenderly and lovingly, 
And what it brings to my mind actually is both the wisdom that arises from many, many indigenous cultures, the Native American cultures of our, of our continent, but also Aborigines of Australia and indigenous cultures in many other lands, with the ones that have survived to this time, to, to our own time, are cultures that understood that earth is not an enemy, earth is not a raw resource, it's not a warehouse, it's a living community in which we are members. And within that community, our task as humans is to secure the things we need for our lives. We need to eat, we need shelter, we need clothing, but to do so in a way that respects the patterns and limits of the natural world, including the needs of our fellow species or not the non-human species. So to woo, to court the earth is to live in relationship to the earth in a loving way. And I, I mentioned earlier that in the book of Genesis, there are two kinds of relationship between humans and the earth suggested. One is dominion, where you rule, you dictate, you demand what you want and you take what you want. That's one pattern. But the other one that is articulated in the book of Genesis is stewardship, is taking care, is living in relationship in a caring way. So wooing the earth, wooing a lover, wooing a friend, all of these are ways of living in an affectionate, tender, and respectful way. Humans need to learn that. If we don't learn that, our own lives will become much more, much more endangered, and there will be much more cruelty and, and uh, suffering in the world. I, I think that caretaking element in terms of our relationship with the land is, is of course, central. It's central in, in, in your writing as, in terms of your career and in this latest collection of essays. Um, and also in terms of the environmental movement. Um, it suggests, I think, that as caretakers, and, and this comes back to my point earlier about trees, um, we leave the stage before the play is finished and we arrive on the stage uh, whilst it's still going on. Is that what we as humans need to come to terms with? That this is really not a story about us or at least as us as individuals and that we are just caretakers and that the story, the narrative, the play, whether it's a tragedy or a comedy or a combination of the two will go on way after we've left the stage? It will. If if humans are wise enough to live in that loving way with the earth, it will go on a long time. If we're not wise enough, it won't go on a long time. We are not guaranteed uh, to, to, that there'll be humans forever, let alone that there'll be anything like the sort of what we call civilization forever. Most species, 90 some percent of all species that have ever lived on earth are now extinct. There's no guarantee that we won't join that list of extinct species. But I do think it's important for anybody alive now, I certainly feel this deeply, 
it's important for anybody alive now to understand ourselves as inheritors of the past and creators of the future. By that I mean we have been born, you and I and everybody listening to this, has been born into the world where there are many cultural riches in existence that our ancestors created. And there are many natural riches that the earth has generated. We were born into this world and we have a profound responsibility not to deplete, not to damage, not to diminish that inheritance, but to pass it on to those humans who come after us in as rich and healthy a condition as we received it. And that means that we have to, for example, think about preserving natural patterns, health, wildness, biodiversity, drinkable waters, breathable air. We have to think about our responsibility for preserving those goods for the human descendants who come after us. To see ourselves as part of an ongoing story, the human story, and as bearing a, both being blessed by what we've inherited from the past, but also having a solemn responsibility to pass it on to the future, undiminished. Finally, Scott, um, we are speaking in the surreal summer of 2020, the summer, of course, of COVID. As we speak, I'm in California. Half the state seems to be on fire as a consequence, self-evidently, of global warming. Things to seem, in many respects, to be very bad. But you end your latest collection, The Way of Imagination, a wonderful series of essays, on a, on a very optimistic or a relatively optimistic note. Um, the essay, as I suggested, is called God in the Garden, and, and, and it suggests a, a return to the wooing of the earth. Uh, the title of the essay, of course, God in the Garden, um, points to certain kinds of Christian narratives uh, about Eden and so on and so forth. Do you think, and, and, and your life and your writing is marked by a, uh, your own personal relationship to organized religion, which is ambivalent but deep, do you think that we can go back to wooing the earth, to fixing this thing, to becoming optimistic, to really embrace a regenerative agriculture, a regenerative world without religion? Can we do so without a faith in any kind of God? Oh, yes, I think we can. I certainly know people who would say forthrightly they don't believe in any divine power beyond what we experience in the natural world. Uh, so yes, I think we absolutely can change our ways. We can regenerate landscapes. We can restore communities. We can heal divisions that right now, for example, divisions premised on the fiction of race, divisions of, of economic and social inequality. We can heal those without having to believe in some external transcendent power. We have power within ourselves, within our cultural inheritance, within our, our intelligence and our imagination. We also have power 
gathered power in communities through cooperation. And we, are, we have the ability, we humans have the ability to work in harmony with the tremendous restorative power of wildness itself. I mentioned earlier that if you leave a field alone in Southern Indiana, a cornfield, just stop farming it, in 10 years, you'll have a hardwood forest, a small growing hardwood forest. We didn't do that. Earth did that. And similarly, when we stop abusing the oceans or a wild species, in most cases, not all, but in most cases, Earth will regenerate. So we don't have to believe in an external power that's some, something beyond Earth, beyond us. We don't have to believe in that in order to believe that we are capable as a species of working at regeneration, at restoration, and at healing. I, on the other hand, I just do want to say that we need, we collectively need the goodwill and the ethical fervor of religions because most people on earth, including most people in this country, would identify themselves as members of one or another faith. And I respect that. And we're not going to solve our problems, whether it's global heating or racial division or perpetual war, we're not gonna solve our problems without appealing to the ethical values that are embodied in the world's religions. And I include all world's religions. Unless we appeal to those and honor them, and unless the people who identify themselves as believers in one or another of those religious traditions, unless they tap into their moral grounding, we will not have enough people caring enough, quickly enough to turn around uh, the direction in which we're, as a species, currently moving. I use the metaphor not only of wooing in that last chapter, but of gardening. Anyone who gardens, whether you grow spices on the window, windowsill or flowers or vegetables, anyone who gardens knows that it's possible for humans to work in concert with, in loving relationship with, Earth. There's no other way to be a good gardener than to be in cooperation with the living Earth. You've been listening to Keen On, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.